What's up, guys? This is the In The Zone podcast hosted by Sam Sherbin and Max Cho. Now, Sam and I met a few years ago at the Bowery Hotel in New York City. And there we had a conversation that would lead us on a long journey. How can we best humanize the individuals behind some of your favorite records? Now, myself as an artist manager and Sam as a mixing engineer, we felt passionately for the need to humanize these stories, to humanize the individuals behind the boards who are responsible for crafting the songs that have become the soundtracks to your lives. We want to use this podcast as a platform for telling those stories. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to the In The Zone podcast. Eric Madrid is In The Zone. Eric has worked with multi-platinum artists such as Khalid, Kyle, Demi Lovato, and many, many others. Hey guys. Hey, how are you, man? Great to be here. Thank you, I'm doing good. Just uh, just, just voted and I'm feeling, feeling great about that. I agree, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. It's gonna be crazy next week. <laughs> don't know what to expect we we shall see it could but be a very interesting two months yeah absolutely. absolutely well you know i think you know you you brought up a good point during this pandemic as a as a freelance mixing engineer has that changed your business model have you been doing um more kind of zoom sessions like uh, and using like audio movers how have you adjusted your business during this time like i live in los angeles and the main reason i live in los angeles is to be around my clients you know to be around the record labels to be around producers to be around artists you know and sometimes they don't always come through to the mix but it's important to still have like a personal relationship with these people so it could be if they're not at the mix it could be going out and getting lunch it could be grabbing a beer with somebody um, it could be going to, you know, a, a new artist is opening on a show and you want to go check out the show to, to see them um, and maybe connect with their people. Um, just kind of all that interaction is kind of gone right now. And it's tough, you know, um, and it's just people are starting to get a little more comfortable, including myself with things like lunch or coffee, you know, outside. Um, mm-hmm. But it's not the same, you know, so it, it kind of sucks because that's, like the reason I live in LA is to be around all those people and to connect in a way that I couldn't connect if I lived in my hometown, Oakland or Portland or Chicago or something, you know? So, so, you know, as a business, um, you always have to adjust. Um, and, uh, you know, it's with mixing, it's, it's a a lot of people tend to leave me alone anyway. I mean, there are clients that, you know, certain producers, certain artists that like to be at the mix. Um, so we're kind of trying to figure that out. Like I have an artist even next week that I'm doing her album and we're like trying to figure out ways to like, I do the mixes and we wanted like a tweak session. So it's like, uh, everybody wears masks and, um, they give me some, you know, come in, give me some notes and then maybe they step outside, um, while I do the notes and they come back in to listen, um, stuff like that, you know, it's, it's an adjustment, you know? And, uh, so I think, and for me, the, the tough part is that, you know, what I've kind of found a good niche in the music industry in is, is, is a guy that kind of helps um, artists um, get established. You know, I kind of, you know, uh, I've had the most success working with artists maybe that are about to get signed or just got signed and doing those, that project or song that kind of helps bring them to market, you know, whether it was the Khalid stuff 
the Kyle I Spy, um, you know, I did Roddy Rich's first platinum song, like stuff like that. So uh, with the pandemic, you know, people, um, you know, and without touring, these artists aren't opening up for bigger acts, you know. So a lot of times the people that open up a tour are the future stars, you know. Um, so we don't really have that, which sucks, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and also a lot, there's not a lot of success right now <clears throat> with just everything being so reliant on streaming only for, mm -hmm. uh, breaking of new artists, you know? So like, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to even think about many brand new artists that are having hit songs right now. You know? Oh, wow. Because, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to think, you know, there's, I think, the 24K Golden song, um, Mood, and, and, and it's really hard to think about anything, hard to find any any other songs. So, mm -hmm. it's it, you know, so for a person like me, that a big part of keeping their business successful and stuff relies on breaking these artists, it is tough, you know. And um, and I know a lot of, there's artists I work with that have very promising new music that could blow up. And they don't quite know what to do with it. You know, they say to themselves, like, do I wait out the pandemic or do I put it out now? And a lot of them can't wait the pandemic out because we don't know if it's going to be another one to three years, you know? You know, they put out their music and they're not, they kind of were hoping for that traditional rollout and that traditional success because it's like their first song with Interscope or it's their first thing with Sony and they're, you know, this is this is what they signed up for. Like, this is why they signed that contract, you know? was mm -hmm. to be broken by a major label and have that push. And the pandemic has kind of given them disappointing results. Um, so it's tough, you know, but I, I just got to say, you know, the, and I, I tell people, you know, the pandemic's a temporary thing. You know, it's not, we just have to kind of weather the storm. Um, the good news is that people still are making music for streaming. So, you know, the record labels are still making a lot of money. Like they, they still make good money off the streaming. So, you know, they're still hiring people. So there's still work out there. There's still people putting out music. So that's the good news is there's still work for us. It's not like, you know, it'd be a different story if nobody was putting out any music, but they, they are putting out music. Um, so we're fortunate that there's still work out there. You know, it's just sometimes you want to work on music that is successful and the success leads to, to dope stuff in the future. Like if you have a, a song that blows up in a cool genre, a cool vibe, like other dope artists in that genre or vibe are going to hit you up and say, Hey, like, I love what you did on this. It was a huge song. I want you to mix my stuff. So it does have a reaction to what's kind of coming down the pipeline. Super. Oh yeah. 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 I have, uh, I was definitely thinking about, um, the equation of a mix, a really, really good mix and a success. Uh, do you feel like a really incredible mix by yourself helps streams? Does it does it help the numbers, or you know how do you feel about that? Like, I feel like the most important. I feel like the most important thing often is a great song. So yeah. I, you know, I think engineers and mixers we get a little caught up in how great is our mix, you know. But if you could do the best mix on your of your life on a song that's not so great, or maybe even never comes out, you know, and nobody ever knows that you did this amazing work, you know, but the, the stuff that, you know, I've seen take off and I personally worked on that took off were just great songs, you know, and they had really good productions. And a lot of times they have also very well done and strong uh, 
pre-mixes and rough mixes, you know, and I get great stems to work on. You know, it's, it's, it's a conversation that's not had often enough. Everybody wants to give the mixer all this credit and they want to say, oh, this guy is, Bex, you know, just did an incredible mix on this or he does incredible work, but they don't really know, you know, how good the material is when they get it, you know? So some songs you could say, hey, that's the best mixer I ever heard, but they might not realize that the mixer only made it five to 20% better than the rough. Yeah. yeah, I was I was definitely uh, thinking about that. Like, you know, some rough mixes come in so, so good. And it's just like that light hand, that like velvet touch on it to just spruce it up to the next level. Because to be honest, some producers, you know, they, they have the same tools that we have. You know, they may not be thinking completely like the final, 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 but they are thinking of the final. They're like technically giving you a final record. And your job yeah, is but, to mm-hmm. put in that 5% or like, um people at the super high level like a manny or a serban you know i feel like they get paid well to keep the integrity of a set artist you know like ariana grande has a serban touching her records so she sounds the same mainly throughout it's like a it's like a quality control thing yeah and a lot of it is about taste a lot of you know i saw that a lot working with manny it was like people just kind of uh they, they hire somebody because it's like, hey, I got this this mix 60 to 80% done, but I want to hear how you would finish it. And I want to hear your taste on how you think it would sound done. Um, you know, or they want to just, uh, they don't want to, you know, sometimes the hardest part with the mix is that last 10% of just like finalizing it. And, and maybe when you're a little younger in your career, you kind of question yourself and you say, hey, I don't know if this is right yet. You know, so a lot of people just want to kind of, say, hey, like, you know, I'm not a professional mixer, I'm a producer, uh, or I'm a new engineer, so I'm going to get as far as I can to where, to where it feels good, and then I'm going to give it off to somebody who has more experience in finishing records. And that also gives them the opportunity to, to move on with their life, you know, like, so they can send it off to the a, a mixer they trust, and then they can, uh, you know, start working on other songs. Like, they don't have to keep getting notes from the label, they don't have to make different versions the label once, they don't have to mix in the features that might come in later, you know, they wanted to send it off to somebody and move on to the next thing. Yeah. You know, um, it's, it's said on your website, you know, you trained under Manny Marikin, one of the best mixers in the world. And it said that you worked on over a thousand songs in a three year period. So what was the biggest takeaway when you're working under Manny under that kind of like pressure and delivering and just, any um, insight into that whole process? A lot of people well, are probably curious about that. Yeah, I mean, what I learned from Manny, like, you know, um, um, is just really the kind of more like the business of, of mixing, like about how to keep clients happy and how to about be flexible with your schedule, kind of prioritize things. Um, and uh, to also like over the course of doing a thousand songs in three and a half years, um, this is eight years ago, um, I, I, you kind of see like, um, how to finish records and, and not, it's not just about like, how do I send off mix one and then, you know, they love it and it's done. It's really about sending off mix one and then you get, you know, feedback where they say, Hey, like, you know, I think you, I think you missed it on this one, or I think, uh, uh it could be better in these regions or it's missing something in the mix that maybe, uh, wasn't there in the pre-mix that, you know, never, never existed in the song. We want you to add that, you know, so some, it was just all those situations, like how to, when something comes up 
and you have to sometimes take a just transition a client from saying, hey, I don't know if I like this or I don't like this at all to saying after an update or two to saying, wow, I love this. You know, I, uh, just that just those things you can do like, you know, and when, when they ask for certain things in the notes, just how to go out and do that. You know, so when I went freelance eight years ago, um, I was just a lot more prepared for those type of comments from people and how to go about fixing things. So that just uh, just that experience. You know, like uh, the more mixes you can do and the more mixes you can even be around as an assistant um, or intern or whatever, you know, you're going to you should learn something from all those. So when you're in a hot seat, you can better handle them. Oh, yeah, you know, that that's really pivotal. I mean, uh, it's it's about delivering right and making your clients happy and knowing how to deal with rejection. You know, I feel like you can't really be in this business and have a bad sour face for rejection because you're probably going to hear a lot more no's than you're going to hear any yeses. So it's like, how do you persevere through? And especially if you're, um, you're freelancing, it's kind of like you're on your own now. You worked under someone that has their own career and now it's like, well, time for me to do my own thing. So like, what were the things that you've learned freelancing under your own that you're like, wow, this has really dramatically helped my business? Um, well. Uh... Uh, I think just when you know when you're working underneath a mixer because some guys work underneath mixers for five to ten years um, you haven't really developed the, your sound so I think a part of a big thing when I left Manny was in that first year or two um, taking the things I had learned and been trying and then you know to not have him there to check my mixes and stuff and that kind of allowed me to find my own sound and like the stuff that I thought my mixers should sound like and the stuff that I got positive feedback from my clients, you know, and um, also like, you know, when you work underneath a mixer, uh, you know, their, their, their name is out there in front. So um, people, you know, seek them out, even if you're working behind them. So it's just nice sometimes when you go freelance to, um, to do maybe one or two mixes that can make all the difference, you know, where it's like, they know it's you and you do a great mix. And then they say, Hey, like, you know how to mix. This is great. Like I can recommend you to other people, you know, and that's just really how the ball kind of gets rolling. Um, so I think that was just a big part of the transition. And then, and then business wise, you just kind of, um, yeah, you, you just, you know, Manny's clients are Manny's clients. I had to find my own clients. So you're just out there. And, you know, in the first year I, I was just kind of, you know, finding people that were letting me, let me even touch their stuff and kind of practicing on it. Um, where the pressure wasn't high, but then establishing a relationship with those producers. And then those producers would start getting placements with record labels and they would put my name in the hat, you know? And then, um, so instead of, you know, Serban or Manny, they would tell the record label, hey, you know, give Eric a shot. You know, I he mixes my stuff. And um, the record labels in the beginning might be a little apprehensive, but they might say, hey, you know, maybe do a spec mix or something. Uh, and then that was just an opportunity, you know, and when you're a new freelance mixer or engineer, like you just dying for opportunities to prove yourself. So sometimes it's those relationships and, um, getting people to like you on a personal basis, uh, can actually lead to getting some shots and stuff. Oh yeah. You know, it's, it's all about that shot. You know, I think when you're an engineer and, and you want to, um, do bigger things. It's kind of like you just want the chance to kind of prove yourself. And then once you prove yourself, you just want 
to make sure that you have everything going to make them happy and make that you're going above and beyond. But, you know, another thing I think a lot of engineers don't really talk about is like an obsessiveness in things that kind of don't matter, like gear or like, you know, other things, like, especially when they're already doing good work, guys will just eat up their entire, you know, mix fee and buy, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars of outboard gear. And then they're, they're in the hole every month. You know what I mean? So do you have any um, insight on engineers to kind of, you know, balance things and kind of judge whether they need something or don't need something, but it's probably to an engineer's uh, taste if they need to get something, but people do lean very heavy on certain things. And, sure. Uh, I mean, so, you know, it's the classic saying, you know, it's the ear, not the gear. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, the clients just care about what comes out of the speakers, you know? Um, so it doesn't make any difference if you mix on a $200 laptop or a $4,000 laptop or, you know, or if you buy a $10,000 Mac Pro or if you have a $10,000 compressor or any of those type of things, like all they really care about is the final product. And, you know, when you're buying things and it is really important to invest in yourself and your business um, to get going, to, uh, to have tax write-offs, which is very important, um, and to have a competitive sound. So I would say, you know, when you're looking at what to get, like got to ask yourself, does this give me a competitive sound uh, or maybe even give me something different that other mixers might not have. So like if I find this really gooey compressor that has like this kind of rich sound and I want to say to myself, hey, maybe I should run all my mixes through that, uh, then my, that might give me something that they just can't get from anybody else. You know, maybe it's this weird esoteric compressor or or who knows, you know, um, and um, instead of just like a, a $5,000 compressor that you're just occasionally going to run something through. Um, you know, you know, you're better off spending money on, you know, speakers, um, acoustics, um, and computer plugins and stuff, you know, it's like you, you should have all your tools and plugins this day and age before you go out and buy a $3,000 compressor. You know, that's just, uh, that's how I feel, you know, and you got to ask yourself, like, sometimes when you buy something, is this going to push my business forward, you know? So like, if I, if, uh, you know, if I buy this uh, UAD bundle or all the plugins for a few thousand dollars, um, will my mixes sound better? Um, mm -hmm. They probably will, because I think UAD bundle is money well spent, you know? Um, so you always got to consider that, like, is this investment going to lead to something instead of just going out and buying, you know, $20,000 worth of outboard gear, because people have all said that you need an 1176, you need an LA-2A, you need a Varimu or 2500 or um, Neve 1073s, you know, like, you know, does, does that actually affect your business? You know, does that actually give, so you might be better off, you know, buying a dope clock or like uh, buying, if you're going out, you know, decide, am I going to go summing or am I going to go in the box? You know, if you're going to go summing, get a good dope summing mixer and then you then you have to say okay now i need a dope converter to get in and then you know you know so those might make di big differences like when i got a lavery gold like i immediately heard like a difference in my mixes so i was so i thought to myself hey that's money well spent you know i think the first mix i ever did on one i was i was doing mixes for rca at the time and the anr was like yo that's the best mix you've ever done for us and wow. um so then i was you think to yourself well and I think I was even demoing it from Vintage King at the time. 
And, you know, when they started saying that, I was like, okay, well, I guess this is a good investment, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll buy it. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Anything, like you said, to give you an edge, because it's like, I guess when I was growing up, you know, I'm, I'm 30, 30 now, but like when I was growing up, like there wasn't many mixers, you know what I mean? There were kind of like guys that were doing it, the old school guys that were using the gear. And I think gear became a thing is because they didn't have plugins that emulated, you know, 25 Fairchilds in one, you know, like they had what they had and it made a massive tangible difference at that time but like it's it's i think it's now it's like it's it's because there's so many people out there mixing and such i think what you said is important is like how do you get a distinguishable sound that no one else has you know and um are there any other things during your freelancing um you've gotten management correct yeah yeah i'm with am awesome awesome was, was that something that you were seeking as you were freelancing or how did that conversation go about? Did you reach out to them? Did they happen to reach out to you? And so uh, I, um, yeah, yeah. Them? So I, I think management is super important um, kind of in the life and growth of being a mixer. Um, and it's not necessarily something that you just start with. Like it's, it's, you know, a manager would really have to take a chance on you for that. It's more so like you get going, you kind of hustle on your own. You're kind of sending out invoicing and stuff on your own, which which sucks because then you have to chase checks. But like, um, you kind of have to work yourself up to a point that you have clients, you know, and you have people hiring you. Have people like your work, and you're kind of like maybe getting a little bit of a buzz, or people are saying you do good work. But what, I, what happened to me is it took about two years of freelance, and I kind of hit like the ceiling, where. Um, you know, record labels, I was getting mixes with indies and record labels, but uh, they weren't taking me, you know, very seriously yet. So like, I was starting to lose out on some of these gigs, um, where, you know, they're artists that maybe I worked with when they were indie, and you kind of help them build up and you have like this, this idea in your head that when they get signed a record label that you're in the door with them. So like, they're going to say to their A&R, hey, you know, I want Eric to mix my stuff. And then you you know, maybe those free or cheap mixes that you did early on are now, you know, leading to big budget mixes, and, and you know, but um, that doesn't necessarily happen. So what happens is they get signed to a record label and they might put your name in the hat, but the A&R could easily say, you know, well, I don't know who that guy is, or he's not a, a big name you know, guy that we know of. Um, or the A&R might just say, hey, that, you know, I have so-and-so do all my mixes, you know, um, for my, for my clients. And so I had that happen where a couple of people that I spent just years building with, when they got signed, the A&R just kind of shut the door on me. And they said, hey, you know, we're not interested in that, you know, use my guy. And so that's when it kind of started really hit me that I, uh, I needed help uh, to, to be kind of more legitimate to these A&Rs and record labels, like more than just, you know, the homies and independents and stuff. So. Uh, when I got management, I mean, I just remembered like right away, like, you know, I think I was doing uh, a lot of the time more stuff with RCA, the kind of the first label that took a chance on me. And remember the day I signed with AM, like every single person at RCA wrote me a congratulations email that I knew. And I kind of knew that. The, and, and then they say, oh, you know, we'll, let's start you off with this EP and this and that. Um, and I kind of knew that I had done something right. And then I remember the first time that my Andrew negotiated for me. It was like an independent thing, and I kind of only gotten 
kind of a smaller rate from independent standpoint because I said to myself, you know, they don't have much money. This is all they can do, you know, and negotiating for myself. My manager uh, called me back and he said, you know, I've gotten you, uh, we finished a deal and you, you've essentially gotten three times more than you've ever received, you know, from an independent. Um, so I kind of got the sense then I was like, okay, like on the business tip, this is the right direction, you know? Um, so, you know, it helps you know, a lot of times, like, you know, negotiating, if, if you're negotiating for yourself, people are going to, you know, talk you down a lot. And they're also going to, th- you know, think that, oh, you know, he just mixes in his bedroom and he doesn't have overhead and this and that. So I can get him on a cheap, cheap, cheap rate. Um, but, you know, when you come, when you have somebody negotiating for you and if they have some clout, then the record label says, oh, well, you know, he's got to pay his management. So, and he's got expenses and he might even have an assistant. So we can't get him for cheap, cheap. So we have to give him a healthier rate. Um, and so you, you should see a jump in your rates, you know, and I always tell people like, you know, if your management's working out for you, if you've, you know, made more, maybe a year after having a manager than you did the previous year, um, after, you know, deducting their cost of the management fee, you know, so, um, management can be important, you know, for people to take you seriously, to get good rates. And then, uh, you know, for some people they're lucky enough where their manager actually has connections to help get you work, you know, like they know some A&Rs and some record labels and they can go out and vouch for you and they can kind of bring you up in meetings and different stuff. So I've been fortunate for that where my manager kind of helped give me some shots with some different people he knew. And as a young mixer, all I really wanted was an opportunity to prove myself. Um, so, you know, some of those, he got me a shot and then I, I did well in the mix. And now maybe I've mixed 50 to 100 songs for that client since then, you know, uh, at a you know major label rate or something. So it's a, uh, yeah. So, you know, some, that can help a lot if they have, and some, some managers have, they also manage producers. So very often managers want to put mixers with the producers they represent. Mm-hmm. Um, it financially makes sense for them, um, but and it also can put you with because uh, they have the incentive if they represent both of you and they have financial incentive in both of you, then it incentivizes them to put you together, and um, so that can lead a lot of work, you know. And uh, so yeah, I don't, you know, sometimes it's this I people get this idea that a manager is gonna get me work, right? Yeah, I hear that all the time. You know, that people are looking for what manager they want and they're saying well which guys out there is going to go and get me work well it doesn't really work that way like you have to go get your, yourself your work you have to go hustle yourself you know that's why kind of pre-pandemic life is better because you can be out there hitting the pavement meeting people connecting people you know doing a, a spec mix for a producer that could lead to something later who knows you know but um but you know it's, it's up to you to go hustle up your work it's not up to your manager your manager technically should just negotiate a rate and, and, and help them go collect. Like that's technically all they really need to do to fit the description of the manager. But, um, but you get some, some of us are fortunate because we come across a manager that might be able to bring in through their connections, a little bit of extra work, you know? So, and, and those are the win winning situations where just that little bit of extra work that they can help bring in or those little bit of extra opportunities that they can help get you um, kind of separates uh, the, the quality of managers often, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, doing, you know, when, when you're an independent mixer and then all of a sudden you're doing, you know, mixes for like RCA or 
you know, any other like major labels, you know, the main universal, you know, you feel like you've kind of hit a point where you're like, now I'm, you know, competitive amongst other, you know, mixers who are doing high, high quality work. Because I think it's different when, you know, when you're mixing for an indie and they're liking it and then you're mixing for a record label and there's like a million people in the email chain with A&R and producers, everyone else associated with it. And it must feel great, you know. Um, I know it feels great for me when you could satisfy that many different people in all different areas of the scope of the record. So like, I was wondering, you know, did you did you feel a lot better when you were getting these mixes done for all these majors and like feeling that you were moving forward um, and also getting those artists, those up and coming artists that just got signed, um, you know, helping them get that push, like you said, to become more known, known artists. So what was the first part of the, the question? Because was the question was kind of in the beginning of this. Like, yeah, be... yeah. The, well, the question was, you know, um, about, you know, mixing for majors and then making them happy opposed to making an independent artist happy, where there's only one opinion that really sways the whole thing opposed to a plethora of opinions in the email chain. Like, how did that sure. make you feel as far as confidence and moving forward as well? Well, I mean, mixing for, um, you know, record labels can be can feel very bureaucratic and, and you'll kind of notice the difference a lot of times when you're working with priority artists for the record label as opposed to new artists. So sometimes when they're a new artist, maybe you just deal with the the A&R or the manager or such and such. But when it's like a priority artist for the label, you know, you'll see like the head of the whole label like on the emails and he'll want to hop on the phone with you and he'll um, want to go through mix notes with you if it's like a single or something. So uh, it's a good feeling when you can get like a Craig Kalman of the world who runs Atlantic to like love your mix, you know, and want to put it out as a single. Because the worst thing that could happen is Craig Kalman's like, man, I, I can never get happy with Eric's mix. Like we've done updates. It's not, he's, he's, he's showing that he's amateur or this or that, or he can't give me what I'm looking for. If I give him a note, he can't execute it. You know, and and then start losing confidence in you, and it's it's really easy in this kind of political mixing world for things to kind of spiral down quickly. You know, so if if, if one you don't, it's like sometimes you can bat, you know, you can go ten for ten, but then maybe that one mix that they didn't like the first pass on or whatever, or they didn't feel like you nailed it in the notes, they'll hold that one against you as opposed to the ten that you nailed. It's kind of it's a tough business. For that so um you have to have really thick skin um so it's, it's very gratifying when you can get like kind of the bureaucracy and all the people of the, the record label to like your mix and then even better when those people start saying man this guy is like really good we should send him more work or we should kind of throw his name around a and r meetings and then people you didn't even know were contacting you because there's kind of chatter about you so that's a really good feeling like when you're you know just getting your career going especially um, and I would also say about the independence, I think that's actually changed a lot because there's kind of now there's like levels of independence. So there's like people that are, you know, kind of maybe just just up and going and they don't really have they're kind of maybe their, their music might sound a little bit amateur or um, or they don't have much of a team as far as a business model. Um, and, and but then there's there's a whole scale now because, you know, a lot of um, a lot of independents are do have a sound and 
a dope producer and do have even a following, you know? And, uh, and what record labels are doing more often in that case is they're doing joint ventures. So it's, it, that's like kind of the thing for the last few years is like, it's less common where, where a record label does finds an artist because they heard him in a coffee shop and they thought they were good, but they didn't really have, you know, any shows going or any infrastructure, or any team or any of that stuff. They've kind of gotten away away from that. And they, they're more so signing artists that, um, you know, already have sold out shows and already have the sound and already have a following and already have, you know, tens to hundreds to millions of uh, thousands of, of followers on Instagram and social media and stuff. So what happens is the record labels more often, those are the artists are seeking out because it's almost more of a sure thing for success because they already have a buzz and maybe they're even known throughout the country. So the independent people, they might even say, Hey, like we want to go to the record label with a finished album, you know, which is very common now. So sometimes you work with independents and they uh, like, you'd be surprised. I mean, they have, they have bigger budgets than the record labels, you know, and then what, what they do, you kind of collaboratively, collaboratively do with the artist, the manager and the producer, and then you get it the way that they love it. And then they go strike a deal with Sony or Universal. And then they hand that album to Sony Universal. And then, um, and then Sony Universal just kind of is, just becomes a partner with them. They're, you know, they're, they're revenue sharing as opposed to Atlantic or whoever just owning them completely. Like they're, you know, so it's very common now where the, the artists and the management and the producers and everybody has like full control of their music. And the mm -hmm. record label just has to hear the finished product and make sure that they, they like it enough to put it out, you know, I mean, to make sure that no red flags are raised. Um, so that's just much, much more common now. So the, the lines have really blurred between working with an independent and working with a record label now. Because so often the independents become part of the record label like the first platinum song i ever mixed um years ago was this natalie the rose song called somebody um with jeremiah and uh, that we mixed that when she was an independent artist i think the mm -hmm. i think the producers were friends of mine and they say hey we got you know this cut we want you to do it but, you know they actually had a budget we you know i think at the time i was mixing on ssls and we had enough money for you know me in the ssl room and um you know, we mixed it and it was an indie thing. And then three months later, Republic signed them. Republic heard my mix. They say, hey, it sounds dope. Let's put it out. And then, you know, the song was on the radio and, and did well. And, yeah. you know, and that it was a better situation actually for me for, to walk for them to walk into the record label with my mix to say, hey, we're feeling this. We want to put this out. It, I would have been I was I was in a winning situation as opposed to them walking into Republic signing of the public and then and then the discussion of comes up of who do we mix with so you know republic's going to say oh well you know it's our new artist it's her it's her first single we're going to go to radio with it they're not going to take the chance on the new guy those are the ones that go to manny and, and serban and, and people like that you know um mm. so the only so if you want to kind of get a leg up mix it with them when they're independent you know, like I Spy, we mixed when Kyle was independent. Um, yeah. and, and that got picked up by Atlantic. So, you know, it, it already, it was out, it had a buzz. And Atlantic said, hey, we want to you know, kind of do something like a joint venture or like just pick you up with that song and ride with that. So sometimes a good foot in the door is to find an artist who's independent, who, but who has a good team 
good business sense, a dope sound. Like you had to like kind of read the lines and say, hey, like there is this artist has a good chance of blowing up. And those are the ones you got to take chances on and you got to put mixes on. And you're gonna you're gonna win some and you're gonna lose some, but sometimes the wins can be really big. I spy kind of like with a slow ramp up, and then all of a sudden that summer it was played like seven times a day, you know, in New York. It was like huge. Yeah, and, and, and that's Khalid, you know, it's like a slow ramping up, and then it just you know it just goes off for that time, you know. Yeah. So yeah, Khalid location took about a year to really like. I think it did eventually become like a number one song at Urban Radio. But it took a year from like the song, the day the song came out to, to get there. And that's what you're going to find more often when you're mixing with an independent. So even if, you know, because they're going to start the song off low and then they're going to build it up slowly by slowly by slowly. And then certain things will kick it up. Like, so they get signed by a record label and that extra money kind of that's infused into that song to, to push it more and to maybe make it international, which changes things. When you sign with a record label, your song can go from being a local thing to an international thing. Um, you know, so the songs will get just these, these spikes along the way, um, but the growth will be slow. So that's kind of the trade-off. Like you do a song that's a priority artist for a record label, it might come out the gates running. Um, but if you do a song for an indie, it might be a slow growth, but it might they might both end up at as hit songs. You know, it's just going to be a different growth. Yeah, you know, um, the the growth pattern, especially you really don't know, you know, nobody knows kind of what a hit is and anything could be a hit now, especially with TikTok. I mean, there's labels obviously signing TikTok artists now and putting out their records, you know, because it's like you said, it's like they already have a following. They have the, the most important thing an artist has is like, you know, fans, you know, and mm-hmm. um, like for an artist, it must be interesting to work with an artist before they're like really, really popping. And then all of a sudden they're just huge and they can completely change their life. And that also changes your life as well, because now your name is associated with a bigger record. Does that, you know, with your management, do you say, well, um, I got a multi-platinum song now. Does the rate go up? Like when, when do you start to shift your rate and kind of like your business model higher based on the success that you had on previous records? Okay, so I guess I'll answer that in two parts. So the first part, so the second part would be about um, your rate and stuff. So, you know, the, the, the first part that comes to mind kind of when you're saying that is you got to like um, working with artists and helping them break in is another thing that you also have to have thick skins for. So I would kind of recommend to engineers who are working with an artist and helping the market, maybe even have their first hit song with them um, for them and the artist to still have thick skin through that because you kind of get you get in this sense where like you're like riding high and you're like hey nothing can mess this up you know but the reality is what 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 just happened like that artist went from a no name artist to a big artist who now has a big budget and is working with big producers and is a priority to the record label right so the, the dynamic has shifted so much that um, you might not be part of the shift. You know, so like, you know, when, when Khalid goes from, you know, just a kid from El Paso to one of the biggest R&B singers in the world, you know, then what happens is that Stargate and everybody wants to work with them um, and they have their mixers, you know, and, and then what happens like, um, you know, like Khalid got his own engineer and then 
you know, the owner, his engineer wants to be involved in the record. And, you know, I didn't have a relationship with them. We're all friends, but I just like, I just, I, um, you know, I didn't get the call for the second Khalid album, even though the first one was very, very successful, you know? So, you know, as a new mixer, you have to have tough skin through that because as that's happening, you're kind of, you know, upset about it. You think that you should get that next record. So I just want to kind of, my lesson I learned through this is that you have to have the thick skin to say, you know what, I helped bring them here. You know, uh, it, it, I got work out of it from other people. Um, I have, a, you know, maybe I won a Grammy from it. Maybe I have plaques on, a plaque on the wall. And those are all wins, you know, but don't get so emotionally invested into, hey, like I need to mix all of this artist stuff from now on because the dynamics change. They're now a huge artist with a huge budget and people all over the world want to work with them, you know? So it's great if you get that call, but don't just kind of keep kind of pushing and keep searching for the next person if it doesn't. And those yeah. are some of the tough lessons I've learned, you know, like I don't, you know, I didn't. Uh, do the second Khalid album. I didn't. Uh, I didn't mix Kyle's last album. Um, I, you know, I didn't mix Roddy Rich's uh, album. Like that's, like I, it, it, it's one of those lessons. Like you can get upset about it, you can get hurt about it, and it's kind of a natural feeling early on in your career. Like we're mm -hmm. all emotional people. Like we're mixers are artists. We put our heart into it. So that's it's a tough experience to, and lesson to learn. But I would just tell people that's going to happen more often than not and then just kind of keep pushing and keep doing great work and keep their head up and everything does kind of come full circle like you'd be surprised like sometimes they'll work with somebody else like it's it's hard for a mixer to consistently keep a client throughout their career like sometimes they have they the producer they have on an album or or just the they say hey you know so and so mixed kendrick or they mixed uh this uh you know ariana grande song or, or lizzo or something and those those mixers might get seeked out because of that, you know. Um, so you have to just. Uh, so sometimes they're going to fly off, and they're going to they're going to work with somebody else, and you need to fly off and find other people. But then maybe because you guys did great work together, and people connected to it, you guys can reconnect later on down both your careers. Like maybe they'll say, "Hey, I did the last album with so and so, and it was great, but we really enjoyed the experience with you." Or maybe we we tried somebody else and we had our most success with you. Well, let's on the next album, let's get back together. You know, let's, let's get the team together again. Um, so that happens, you know. So you've got to yeah. be patient. you got to have thick skin. The music industry is a brutal, brutal industry. Um, and mixing is much more political than tracking, you know, or being a, a, a personal engineer to a producer artist. So um, perseverance is like, you know, a big thing, you know. Um, uh, and then secondly, the question about, uh, the financial part. So I, I wouldn't break down, um, that. So if you win a Grammy or you, or you have a platinum song, your rate doesn't just automatically go up. Like it doesn't work that way. Um, I think rates are depicted upon what people are willing to pay you. So if I go out and I say, Hey, you know, Serban makes 10,000, I think, you know, so I want to make 10,000. Uh, a mix and then you put yourself out in this market as a $10,000 mix guy and, and nobody's paying you well you know reality check has hit in, has hit set in that you're not a $10,000 mix mixer so you kind of have to find you have to start at the bottom as a, as a new mixer you have to start doing mixes for one or two hundred dollars you know and then you have to kind of fill your schedule with that and you have to say okay well you know 
and then people are going to come to you, and, you know, so, and they're going to say, Hey, you know, I want, I want you to do another mix for uh, $200. And you're going to say to them, well, you know what? I, I got so busy in my $200 mixes that, you know, I'm now making $500 a mix. Cause what happens, you got so busy doing $200 mixes that, you know, you started saying to yourself, well, if I bump it up to 500, do I still stay busy with $500 mixes? And, and then, and maybe I have some clients that I really enjoy working with that I grandfather into their old rates of 200. So, so, but if you can make the jump up to 500, then now when, when somebody calls you for work, you say to them, well, I'm a $500 mix guy, you know? And then, um, and then you kind of just, you just fill up your schedule and you just go with, it's all about, you know, supply and demand or how much are people asking for your work? And that's going to depict how, what your rate is like. So if you, and you just keep working it up and you say, Hey, you know, somebody calls you again, they say, Hey, I want that $500 mix, you know? And they say to them, you know, it's, it's a thousand now because, mm-hmm. you know, people are paying me that it's, 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 you know, it's a lot of times it's like, what are people going to pay you? So if you go out and you say from the jump, I'm a thousand dollar mixer from, you know, from day one and people aren't paying you that, well, then what do you have to do? You have to go down to two or $500 and find out if people want to pay you that. So you find an amount of people are willing to pay you. Mm. And you kind of you kind of work it up to say, okay, well, if I jump it up to five hundred, if I jump it up to a thousand, if I jump it up to two thousand, twenty five hundred, or whatever, are people willing to pay that? So, mm. and if you're getting yeses, then that means that you're in that world. Like you are maybe a twenty five hundred dollar mix guy because people are willing to pay you twenty five hundred dollars to mix. So you've made that jump, you know. And then if you say, and then you just kind of. But you got to say to yourself, like, how busy am I on that? So am I got, do I have one person, like, do I have some rich millionaire paying me that and everybody else is paying me less? Well, maybe you, you haven't quite made that jump yet. You know, you have to have a healthy amount of people paying you that. And then maybe you get your rate up and you just kind of keep building it up. You know, I've had my manager tell me for a while, they say, hey, like, you know, uh, we're not making, you know, maybe we're not asking for enough. Let's, let's try going higher and see if we get yeses. And we tried mm-hmm. it and we got yeses. And we got people saying, sure, like, we'll pay you that. So, and then that was just the reality. It was like, okay, I think we've made it to that tier, you know, but, um, and then you start, and then it's kind of the same thing with points. You know, we start, you start, like I was apprehensive about points in the beginning. And then some of my other mixer friends were just like, dude, just ask for it. Like, what's the worst that can happen? They say no, you know? Um, but they're like, but I ask and I get them, you know, and, and we're all kind of on the same level at the time. And so I started asking for it and, you know, and, and people said yes for the most part. And some people said no. And, and you just have to deal with it by a case by case basis, you know, but even if you go out and you say to yourself, like, okay, you know, I've worked my way up from $200, maybe up to $5,000, um, or 4,000 or 3,000, you know, it's, everybody's different. And then you also have, if you have a healthy higher rate, then people can go to you and they can say, Hey bro, like I got this really dope song. It's, it's, uh, you know, or maybe like, you know, we want to get this signed or something. We don't have that big rate. Um, you, uh, can you work with us on the budget? I mean, it's, that's this part of the business too, is you just, you work with people on their budgets. I mean, some of the, the biggest stuff I've mixed was me working with people on their budgets. So I got to, you know, I, I went down my rate, but um, maybe, and they said, Hey, we, I can be flexible on the turnaround time. Um, or they say, Hey, you know, I'll get you more money on the next one. If we can get this artist to blow up. Um, so some of those some of those wins can happen off stuff you didn't make much money on. You know, you have to calculate is this is it worth me going down this rate for this promising artist 
knowing that if this blows up, I might get 20 to 100 pool rate mixes off of it because people will want to find that sound, you know? So that's kind of the business. You got sometimes you got to bet on yourself and you got to, with the, with the rates, you, you want to just kind of work your way from the bottom up, not from the top down. From the bottom up, and then you want to have a, eventually get to the point you have a healthy enough rate that you've given yourself some room to go down and work with people on the budget. Eric, you have a, a very, very wide outlook on, on the music business. You know, everything from, from the day-to-day -day work to thinking macro about what the new trends are in the business. And, and this rate talk is going to serve a lot of young mixers and a lot of young managers very, very well. I think it's extremely eloquent the way, the way you put it. And it's very much the way that Sam and I also command our business as well, right? It's, it really does take that brick by brick kind of mentality until you calibrate and you've reached a point where you have a rate that you're comfortable sitting at because it's accurately representative of what you bring to the table. Mm -hmm. how, how long did that take for you to get to that place, to get to that calibrated rate? Of course, granted, it changes on a case-by-case -case basis. How long did it take you to get to a place where you knew you had to put your foot on the ground and say, this is how much I'm worth? Well, I mean, um, if I, so in the, in the beginning of me, so me being freelance, you know, I didn't know what to expect. And then I remember just um, maybe my first placements with with uh, record labels, you know, with RCA, where they said, you know, if do a spec mix, and if we like it, you know, this is how much money we have. And then you're kind of, I was just, I remember just being thrown a number. Where I was like thinking to myself, thinking to myself, not telling them, but I was like, dang, I've I never made anywhere close to that. Mm -hmm. um, like hell yeah, I'll do that, you know. And you and that I mean, kind of like my first taste for what record labels had. And then I, uh, and then at that point, you kind of just say, well, shit, if I, you know, this is what I make now for record labels, you know, and, and what's the, what's, what's the worst you can ask for something and, and they just counter, they negotiate. And sometimes you have to negotiate with them. You have to say, Hey, well, you know, people have been paying me this, like, can you do that? But if not, you know, let me know what, what, what you have and we can find a number that makes us both happy. Sure. So that's, that's the constant thing of negotiating, but um i think that was the big thing is like when i first got my record label placements i kind of saw like what that world was like as far as the difference between the indies i've been working with and what a record label had for a mix mm. and then and then when i got my management you know my you know my manager used to be an a and r at, at, at rca and he um yeah, they managed he i think he managed neil pogue before me and he just kind of knew like what the, what they have you know he just kind of knew like you know we can ask for this and they'll pay us and right. or you know, or we'll, we'll um you know we'll ask for less and and or, or, or we'll work with them on their budgets and, and that's just a big part of it so i but how long did it take to get from the day i started independent to the day that i to the rate that i get now probably five or six years yeah it is definitely not an overnight thing you know and it's just about and then and then some people you come across they they they're you know they have more they're just a little more wealthy and they say hey like i can pay you more than, than maybe you've ever made but you know i'm gonna ask for a ton of changes and i'm gonna have this and you know and, and it's your choice if you want to accept that you know 
Absolutely. You know, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it took a long time. It's definitely not, a, not, not a quick thing. It's a journey. It's definitely a journey. And we, we often see with, with give any, any given podcast or any, any place where we're, we're given individuals like yourself, the platform to speak on their experience. It's almost always valuable to people, you know, in the end of the day, the, the kids sitting, trying to learn the game, trying to get every piece of knowledge that they can. It's very useful to them to understand how you were able to get through specific moments of failure because everybody has those and you have an insanely interesting career, right? You, you've, you've established yourself as someone who has a keen taste for artists who can blow up and get shit to the labels and get their careers taken to another level. You, you've seen pretty much the entire spectrum. I'm wondering through all that experience, could you point us to one experience that, that you remember very clearly because it was hard or it was a result that you didn't get that you expected to get just simply a, a failure. Hmm. I mean, sometimes those failures you almost want to um, erase from memory. Um, I would yeah. say, uh, I would say things I've learned, you know, maybe sometimes just maybe don't, it's hard to think of a specific one. Um, yeah. But I would say, uh, maybe sometimes the way you hold yourself is really important, you know, to not seem like really thirsty and pushy with A&Rs and producers and stuff when you're trying to work with them. Um, you know, because a big part is like, is you're always trying to find, um, you know, pre-pandemic, you're trying to connect with people and stuff that will be the work you're going to do weeks or months from now, you know. No, very often do you come across somebody and they say, hey, thanks for, you know, reaching out. I got a song for you to mix tomorrow. That doesn't really happen. Like, you know, they'll say, hey, you know, dope running into you. Like, I might have something coming up in a few weeks. I can, I can you know, put your name in there for it. Like, that's kind of more how, how it comes. So it's really tempting early on to be seem really anxious to work with a producer or an A&R um, and maybe even come off as a little pushy. And, um, and that's just not the move, you know, mm. because they want to, they want like, it's, it's they want like, part of being a mixer and having somebody hiring you to finish a record, even if it's adding that last 20 to 10 or more or less percent is about confidence. So that's something I always saw with Manny. He was just like uber confident in everything he did, you know? Mm. Um, and uh so and i see that kind of all these successful mixers their confidence level is very high like very 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 little of them don't know you know or feel weird about the record as they're finishing a big part of that is just they're confidently finishing records and moving on to the next one and so the people who are hiring people for their confidence are also hiring people because they're in demand they don't want to work with somebody who seems so thirsty they think to themselves man like that guy must not be working you know or how good is he if he's not working? Or why does this guy keep on bothering me uh, when, you know, I already told him I would hit him up when I had something for him, you know? Yeah. Um, so uh, I would just say, don't try to work that angle too much. Like, you know, and what you're better off doing is you're better off finding producers and artists that you think have a shot, you know, and, and, and have, you think uh, have good business sense and have a good sound and you maybe have a bright future, well, go work with them and go do spec mixes or practice mixes or cheat mixes 
for them, you know, because um, they could be the next Billy Elish, you know, they could be this, and they, you just never know. You're better off doing that than bothering an A&R. Now it is important to keep in touch with people. So sometimes I'll, I'll eat text or I'll email people and I'll just kind of uh, keep in touch with them, you know, because it, it is an out of sight, out of mind thing. You know, if you don't, uh, that, that is legitimate in, in our industry, you know, because sometimes the only thing is if you're Manny or Serban or who, or Jason or whatever, like you have, you know, songs that are out there and a lot of them sometimes that are very successful. And they're all over the charts. So they're going to get those calls. If, if it's like a blind thing, they're, the, the record labels on are just going to reach out to them because they're kind of everywhere. You know, it's like you, you can't avoid them, you know. But for, for other people that are um, waiting for opportunities and stuff like that or trying to create opportunities, uh, get out there and be active. And don't just, yeah, reconnect with A&R, grab a beer with them, grab coffee. It's super important, but never seem like, itching for work or desperate for work or like you're not working, you need the money because that turns them off so much. Like they want to, you're better off finding a producer and saying, Hey, I love, I love what you're doing. Let's work together. And then that producer or that artist might get signed or picked up or who you don't know. And then they just take you along with them. They put, they say, Hey, you know, Eric mixes our music. And then the A&R and the record label, they, they often just say, cool. Well, if that's your sound. That's your sound. Let's roll with it. You know? Like we we hired we we signed you for the sound. If that's the guy giving you your sound, well, he's coming along too. So um, that does happen actually a lot more often now with the joint ventures. So you know, out of sight, out of mind is a big thing. So if you're not those huge names, um, that whose name their, their names are just floating around all the time because they're working on these big records that are everywhere. Um, if you're not one of those guys, then you know out of sight, out of mind is a big thing. So you got to put yourself out there. You got to go to meetings. You got to uh, get a beer with somebody. You got to connect um, and work with them. And then they, and then, and then you'd be surprised that they hit you up and they're like, man, you know, I, I wasn't thinking about you for something, but you know, I have something, you know? And uh, I remember this artist, Rich Brian, and mixed his album, like, or a lot of it, it kind of split it. And uh, that's just because I had worked with the producer a long time ago. Um, and I went out to a, a bar one night with a friend and we were on our way out and I ran in, I bumped into him. This is like kind of the reason why I suggest living in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, is that cause is because I just bumped into him on the way out. I was like, Oh man, good to see you. Like, you know, we caught up for a few minutes and then we left and then he hit me up like a week later and he's like, man, it's crazy. You know, I, we actually have this rich Brian stuff we're finishing and we should, we should mix that, you know, but if I hadn't bumped into him in that bar, I even asked him, I was like, if I probably never bumped into you in that bar, I probably wouldn't be mixing this. And he's like, yeah, probably not. Right. That's so interesting. So interesting. Yeah. You know, so, so, so yeah. yeah, just, just, you know, keep, you got to be confident and you got to seem, you know, even if, even if you have no work lined up and you're not in your, in a weird mental space and you're kind of doubting yourself, it is just important to uh, kind of show confidence. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's such a it's a youth driven game and you have a lot of young hustlers in it who are very much of the mentality that, of course, you eat what you kill. And that goes for everybody. But I think that that definitely leads to a certain breed of confidence that can come off as borderline needy, desperate, arrogant. I think that that's that's probably what a lot of a lot of young people stepping into the game experience and 
you know, once in a while you, you, you get taught, you know, you get told if you find and stumble upon someone really good like that, you get told that you got to chill out. And I'm wondering if, how, how important has mentorship played in, in your career and in, in frankly your life, right? Especially with the music business. Cause it takes a very, well, I, yeah. 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 For, for the music business, it's, it's something you need uh, for the men for mixing, um, especially. You know? yeah. So I think, uh, I think because I started at Westlake Studios, um, fortunately, um, great place to learn. I learned a ton about tracking. Um, I learned a ton. Like I got I when I started in, in in the studio. I mean, I had graduated UCLA with a degree in history. Um, it was music. Working music was kind of a dream, and I just through some lucky circumstances, I just ended up having this opportunity. And I said, you know, this is I got to make the most out of this. But at the time I went into, it, I didn't even know what a U eighty seven was. You know. And, and uh, so at the West, like I got to learn about these microphones, I got to learn about outboard gear, I got to learn consoles, like I never even touched an SSL in my life. And by the time I left there, I knew, you know, how to use a J, autom automation, every single button, microphone techniques, outboard gear, all this stuff. But I didn't really have, but when I tried to mix a song, even on a million dollar SSL, uh, and I could take my mix and I compare it to, you know, the heavy hitters mixes, there was a, just a huge gap, you know, 20 plus percent difference. Who knows, you know? And I didn't really know how to get there. You know, the, I didn't really know how do I bridge that gap? How do I make my stuff sound more professional? And I think just bridging that gap is mentorship is huge, you know? And, you know, this is maybe like 15, 12 to 15 years ago. And, um, you know, so you have more things available for yourself now, you know, there's, there's, twitch and there's mixed with the master videos and there's youtube stuff and there's waves videos and all these different things which did not exist back then which make um things i guess uh better for people to learn maybe establish some uh, pro techniques quicker um but i know that when i started working with manny like you know for example like i got to hear like what a hit song sounds like mixed on ns10 mm. you know so i think that was big to be like wow like NS10s can sound like this, like those woofers can be popping out and and uh, all those things, and and that's how you know the kicks, you know, sitting just right, and um, and that was a big thing for me, you know, and 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 uh, and he really, and again, mentorship's not an overnight thing. I mean, you could be with a mixer one, two, three years if you wanted, and uh, you should be kind of learning things the whole time, you know. So like if maybe if you if the first year you're afraid to put any thing on your stereo bus or you're not afraid to compress your stereo bus then you know the second year you're you're trying stereo bus compression and you're really going down that world you should always be learning and trying new things and and you should um you know see their techniques and try try them and be like you know what i really like how this worked out and i really and i didn't really like how this other thing i tried that they did worked out and then take the stuff you did like and add it to your tool your toolbox you know or your, your tool belt and and that's how you can kind of develop your sound. But if you look at like almost every big mixer, it's changing a little bit now, but like traditionally, every big mixer had somebody that they could say, that's my mentor. Like that's the guy I learned to mix from. Like they, yeah. they all kind of had that. So I'd say mentorship's really important. And then there's just one little thing I wanted to mention about um, the last topic is that, um, you know, advice for young mixers and like lessons to learn is just kind of in that theme is just, don't expect to go in like the front door. Like, so if, if you say, hey, I wanna 
makes for big artists on big record labels don't expect like that front door is closed and locked like they don't want to let they don't want to let you in that club um so you know you gotta that's why you gotta go out and you gotta establish yourself with producers and artists and different things and practice your own sound and maybe make even a cool sounding vibe that people might seek out so that you can find a way in the back door find like find alternative ways to get in because the, the record labels and the big artists and all this stuff do they do not want to let you in that front door and i get asked all the time like how do i get in with record labels and all that stuff um you know and i would say you know get creative like find alternative ways in don't just expect you know hitting up the biggest a rs or biggest producers that they're just gonna say awesome i've been waiting for you to email me or or hit me up on instagram uh yeah come and work with me on these hit records right away like no they're just gonna say you know I i'm good i'm cool off that i already have somebody that does all my stuff you know yeah you have to look for alternative ways it's super absolutely. important to get in the door absolutely this is very much everything everything that that we do as as people working in music is very taste driven and sam and i were speaking about this just the other day the importance of of taste and how it's developed some people just have experiences that inform immaculate taste and there are people who have to learn that the hard way and there are frankly some people who just don't have it at all and need some work on it how have you developed taste through your time in the business or even before it all started for you um well i think you know um i was lucky that when i worked with manny we did so many different types of genres of music like he at the time especially was known as like the guy you go to if you want to mix a hip-hop song one day and a, a country song and a rock song and a R and b song like that's what our days were like it was like we jumped from genre to genre day to day and so that in the mentorship thing that was really important for me was to see like oh like that's where kick should sit in a country uh, a hip-hop song as opposed to a country song you know and the relationships the bass and different things and and um so, you know, that, that, that was kind of an important thing. And, and then, and then you kind of get that sense of okay, that's the approach is to take those type of genres. And then when I left, you know, you kind of develop your own sound and taste, you know, and I think that's important to, to try things and experiment and to not just, you don't want to just sound like mixed by Ali. You don't want to just sound like Fabian or Jason or something. You want to, you want to say like, Hey, how can I uh, sound different or how can I try different things? You know, like I've, people have often comment about me that I, they, my mixing sound kind of like a fusion of different guys, you know, it's like maybe you have a sheen of, I don't want to throw names out there, machine like one guy or a low end like another guy in a space like this guy or, or a, a vocal front like another, you know, and that's, and that's kind of a compliment to me is that, because I've always looked up, I grew up looking up to mixers and kind of pick and choose from the different stuff you like from each of them, because I might say, hey, this guy has great, bottom end but i don't really like where his vocals sit or or his stuff you know sounds great here but it's lacking there and then maybe to try to emulate some of the stuff you like and then little by little you can you can get your taste and i think um uh something i like i really look up to quincy jones and i remember going to hear him speak and something he said really stuck with me where he said somebody asked him a similar question like how do i find my sound and he said um find you know 10 people that inspire you and take a little bit from like you study them and take a little bit from each of them 
and kind of incorporate into what you do. And by doing that, you'll find your sound. You know, so so that was that really stuck with me. And that's you know, as a guy who just literally is like a fanboy, just admiring mixers. Um, you know, and it's a different crop of mixers at the, at the time. Um, you know, just just that was big. So I just found you know, what did I like from different guys? You know, just at the time we didn't have mixer the masters videos and just finding uh, different things to um, to read, like you know recording magazine or sound by sound uh sound on sound magazine articles and just soaking that stuff up and trying different things and saying oh i really love his low end oh this article said that he uses such and such on him. let me try that you know and um so that's an important thing and then also like a lot of mixers because it's, it's it's tough now because a lot like it's not the traditional way now if you go to recording school and you go work at a multi-million dollar studio and you go intern runner assistant and then you go freelance like everything's changing so much because the record because those studios are closing there's so many people trying to get in there's not enough opportunities so you have a lot of guys that are getting into engineering and mixing and didn't have that background they're kind of thrown in the water and just have to to sink or swim you know um and so you can kind of develop kind of strange techniques that way that could work that's why it's kind of a different era right now because the traditional way of learning and, and working your way up is, is almost going away, you know, and you find more often where guys are just like, Hey, like I want to uh, try to get in mixed biology's camp or something, you know, and then they, or, or Jason or Fabian or different people, and they just seek out that person and just jump straight into that, you know, or, or they want to, or they become Snoop's engineer or something just off the bat. Mm. And so it's changed a lot, you know, and then I think, you know, but, the traditional way you you know for me like I, I i came out of ucla starting at the bottom so i think i had to learn initial things first technically on how do you use things how do you go about you know mixing this way or to use an ssl or to even use pro tools or different things or plugins uh and then to learn those technical things first before i could kind of graduate up to the creative and artistic stuff um so, you know, and you can kind of just develop your sound more and more and more as you do that. Uh, so it's just a, it's just a, a process. So you might say, Hey, like I spent one or two years learning, uh, how to engineer. And then once I, once the technical part becomes like second nature, I can move on to, um, finding my sound and being a confident mixer. And, and even then the journey of working your way up within that. And then along the journey, you kind of just pick and try things and you kind of make that part of your, um, sound and, and then and then as and then you say to yourself like that sound kind of becomes my taste um and uh you know i compare it to other records and i like how it stands up and then they kind of all fuses like sound taste techniques you know yeah i think the quincy jones thing is is awesome i mean what a what a master i think it was maybe a couple weeks ago that kanye had tweeted saying you know i'm i'm the best at this or you know i'm, I'm the best music guy alive as he always says and then he had a, a sidebar and was like except quincy jones you know like quincy jones is a master what a tasteful guy um what do you think is next for you eric i mean this is it's it's incredibly incredibly exciting to see a mixer that's so situated very very different positionally you've almost you've almost seen how records climb through radio through charts just by nature of being there so early with an artist that was just at the tipping point. 
And a lot of this time I've been thinking, wow, you know, this guy, to be completely frank, would could make a great AR, could make a great record executive. Do you see that kind of path in your future where you get to sign artists? Or am um, I just shooting in the dark? It's, I mean, I, I, I think I'd be interested in that. You know, I think a lot of, you know, being an engineer and a mixer is a, kind of a grind, you know, like you, um, you know, I used to work, when I was getting going, I used to work, you know, 100 hour weeks for six, seven years solid, like, you know, People don't believe that, but it's true. I mean, that's at, at the time and even now, that's just what it takes to, yeah. to succeed. And um, you have to like live, eat and breathe and sleep it, um, you know? And so what happens is a lot of the other things in your life take a back seat, whether it's uh, connecting with your friends or dating or, or all those things, you know, like, so it, it, it's nice when I went freelance, that's what I really loved is I got to experience those things again after putting them all on the back burner for six, seven years. Um, so uh, yeah, so mixing is kind of a grind. It's long hours and this and that. And then what happens is you want to be successful. And then when you reach a certain level of success, you're even busier. And then you, you want to knock out, you're asked to do stuff, you want to knock it out. And, and you're just in the studio all the time. And um, so it's even can be really hard to find balance. And you have to sometimes step away and say, hey, I, I start saying no to stuff and this and that. So you can have some balance again in your life. So it kind of becomes a point that you say, hey, like, how do I get to the point where I just have more balance in my life and how do I do more than besides mixing, you know? And so I, I do kind of think that there is a next, uh, a next, you know, down the line, something else I, I'm, I'm really enjoy, I really love mixing. I really enjoy it. And, you know, people are still hiring me. So I, I do want to keep that going as long as I can, but I've also kind of told myself that I don't want to be the guy that is upset that he's not getting hired. You know, kind of like the washed up mixer who's like, bitter at the world because it, you know the industry and the sound kind of passed them up you know i don't ever really want to become that or upset because the phone isn't ringing anymore like i I'm, I'm not there yet and i hope to not be there for a while but when that day does come because our our careers are almost like professional athletes like it doesn't go on forever often you do have to kind of pivot at some point um so at that point i could pivot into uh, maybe going back and getting my master's in education and and looking into going into teaching and, and, and I, 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 I like, you know, talking on you know, these podcasts or I really enjoy, I've talked to different schools, whether it was SAE or UCLA or Expression or a few other ones. Um, I really like doing that and I found it very enjoyable. Um, and it, it, I don't know, just kind of gave me uh, something that mixing a song even doesn't give me. So I, uh, I could see myself going more into the education route. Um, and, uh, some of the successes that I can have as a mixer help actually legitimize me as an educator, you know, cause I don't want to learn from a guy that was a runner at a studio and his career ended there. They want to, maybe they'd rather learn from a guy that, you know, has some plaques on the wall and stuff like that, you know? Um, so I could kind of see uh, myself transitioning to that. Uh, I have seen different mixers like Duro and stuff kind of uh, transition into um, being A&Rs and different stuff at record labels. Uh, I haven't thought a lot about it, but um, honestly, that would be kind of fun, you know, to, to, to try that. I think it, I, something new to learn um, uh, to kind of, you know, uh, to take some of the things I've experienced and seen and use them in that realm. And, you know, being an A&R is, you're, you're, it's a tough job too. You know, you're kind of working, you're kind of walking on eggshells as well, where it's just like, they give you, it's like if you're an executive at a film company or a record label, 
you kind of have only so many misses before you let go. So, you know, you know, it might give you two misses before you have you strike out or who knows, you know? So yeah, it'd be an interesting journey, but kind of knowing that that's a, a very volatile business as well, you know, but shit, maybe it'd be nice to kind of play your hand in that. But, but I think education for sure is something that would be next for me um, down the line. Maybe that's five, 10 or more years down the line. I don't, I don't know, you know, yeah. uh, I, I kind of, when I, when that kind of, I think that it'll kind of present itself, you know, and you see a lot of guys also too, that are, um, that mix music that say to themselves, like, man, that was just a grind and it's just hard. It's really tough to year after year after year as an independent worker to go out and find more clients to go ahead and reestablish like to to almost have uh, a and r's and producers and stuff still hire you instead of always seeking out new younger cheaper options you know that's always something in the struggle with or this flavors of the month you know so if i'm the flavor of the month one month or one year then there, there's going to be new ones that they want to work with and that's just, that's just a grind you know so so i think a lot of guys um uh, kind of say to themselves maybe i want something more stable like uh, working in the film industry or something where they, you know, like a do like almost like an Alan Myerson type of world where he's kind of like at the top of that food chain, you know? Mm. So uh, maybe there's a transition into that where I'm doing more stuff to film, you know, and uh, five, one mixes or, or who knows? Cause maybe that could present to me some stability, you know, maybe, you know, you, you, maybe you don't make as much uh, here and there like per mix or per this or per that but you make a, a good steady rate year long, you know, with, with things like a vacation time or sick days, which I, you know, I've yet to experience in 15 years in the music industry. Um, so uh, that could be a cool transition as well. Like as long as I enjoyed it and it challenged me and I uh, kind of gave me that warm feeling that a finished song gives me, you know, that connects with people and connects with the clients. Uh, if I got that out of film and uh, maybe I kind of make that the priority and I'm, I mix songs uh, as uh, on, on the side for passion or whatever, I don't know. It could happen. Um, you know, I kind of just feel like I'm going to deal with like what's in front of me and what's in front of me is that I'm still lucky enough that people are hiring me um, at a good rate to mix songs. And if you kind of ask everybody, that's kind of what, what, what their goal is anyway like that's like a lot of guys that work in posts and different stuff like they wanted to succeed in mixing songs and music like that was option a and a lot of things have become option b so yeah. as long as i'm still in option a and it's going well i'm just going to ride that out and um and then if at some point i have to make a pivot because you know a family life or a personal life or a, a, a business is changing and uh you know i'll um or i want to move out of la who knows you know uh, then then I, i'll take on that challenge then fantastic well eric mm -hmm. i i have a, a final question for you that i'd like to mm -hmm. to you know basically change the context because you're you're on a podcast where it's about it's it's mostly about mix engineers and and with future seasons the, the way that we we created itz was really with, from the outset going into the minds of people who engineer your environment whether that be through sonics or you know physical design and and it's always interesting to hear 
who the individual is outside of their current profession, right? What as specific as what are you doing when you're not mixing? Because it's obviously extremely <laughs> time, time, uh, time intensive uh, of a career. So what are you doing? You know, are you, are you spending a lot of time with your dog? Like, you know, what, what's, what, who are you outside of being a mix engineer? Sure. And that, and it's a tough one because, you know, you're big, such a big part of your identity is as that mixer, you know, yeah, like yeah. even, you know, when new people come in your life, sometimes they don't realize how big a part of you it is. I mean, this is a lifestyle job. Like, and a lot of people that never had a lifestyle job have a tough time connecting to that um, or understanding that really, but it is, I mean, let's just, let's, let's face it. it it's a lifestyle job. Like you, you have to kind of to succeed in this, you have to live, eat and breathe it. And then if you're working your way up hustling, you have to do that even more. And at a certain point you got to say to yourself, I've done that for 10 plus years, you know, yeah, I should introduce more hobbies and stuff into my life. So I'm at that point now in my life, you know, where I, where I work so hard to get where I'm at. And I, and I, you know, put, you know, for a long time I was broke and then, you know, and then I was hustling, trying to get gigs and afraid of not being able to, if I don't do this gig and I go out of town, I'm like, I'm going to lose this client. Uh, that's something that, you know, is kind of haunts you for years and years of working your way up. Like I was, you know, trying to do a lot more traveling and see more of the world, um, kind of enjoy those things that I worked my way up to be able to enjoy. Um, so, and then, and then, you know, for me, kind of people know me um, a lot, even when they come around the studio, I'm, I've kind of, in the last few years, like really gotten into gardening and um, landscaping and different things. It just kind of just happened. And like, I, I always wanted a Japanese garden and then me kind of being a collector and a perfectionist of things, which kind of goes hand in hand with that. Um, I now, you know, I collect Japanese maples and I uh, have a kind of big cactus collection. So now when people come to, to the studio, it's like this big, like urban oasis, like it's wow. got plants everywhere and it's a, it's a vibe and it's like, you know, it's kind of, kind of gives you like a, with, with, with uh, sounds and different stuff, it gives you like this kind of calming vibe, which is supposed to. Um, and I reached during the pandemic, I've started a veggie garden and stuff like that. So trying my hand in that. So gardening has been a big thing. Just, uh, just another hobby. Um, and you know, it's kind of fulfilling, um, seeing something grow and, and, and nurturing that and all that. So, uh, that's fun. Um, uh, you know, I have my dog I love, so I, I take him out with me and we do dog park stuff and all that stuff. And, um, yeah, different, you know, I'm in the films and, and, uh, I, during the, the pandemic, I was, I was kind of a terrible cooker chef or cook before the pandemic. Cause it was just that, that studio life of eating out a lot and quick yeah. bites between, breaks and stuff like that so during the pandemic when we kind of didn't know what was going to happen especially or how safe things were um i started cooking more so now i am actually kind of grown to enjoy that and, and learning more about that um so that's kind of been a new thing and you know, i'm big on films and i'm just big on connecting trying to connect with people and meet new people and it's just so many years of just kind of locking yourself in that studio to learn and to grow and to put out great work I think I'm at the point now where I'm just kind of like, well, that's always going to be part of me in my life. But like, you know, what is, what is there outside the studio, you know? And, uh, some, I'm, I'm at the point in my life now I'm more interested in that. You know? Absolutely. Fantastic. Amazing. Well, Sam, amazing. Yeah. Is there anything from you, Sam? Yeah. Any other questions? Sam? Yeah. You know, um, 
you've done so much and you know now you're 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 really finding um that core core balance it's it's uh it's really tough you know because i think one of the best things i've learned from you know hearing you and your experiences is that you know you don't romanticize the business you know a lot of people they romanticize you know getting plaques and grammys i'm like you know i was like i know people that have grammys who are broke you know it, it, it's it's not the end all goal that's going to just once you get it you're going to be like oh my god this is everything i ever wanted i'm fulfilled as a person you know what i mean um so like it's it's just wonderful to hear your story and um to that you found something outside of the business cuz like when you're in it and you're working that's all you think about year after year and it just becomes one big blur you know what i mean it's like a blur you know so it's it's good that you know you're finding balance and do you have any tips for people who are working really hard um try to find that balance try to like maybe take a sunday off you know that they've yeah, had yeah, taken uh taking time uh off is pretty key i think that was a big thing when i transitioned away from mixing on big consoles and I used to mix in for years, you know, in big expensive studios and, you know, every hour is accounted to, you know, every hour is worth hundreds of dollars for that studio and your client. So you're kind of there all the time. And it was nice to transition to having my own studio to basically be like, okay, like I want to take two hours off now and go out, or I want to take the evening off and get back to this tomorrow, you know, or I want to take run errands early in the day and then get in the studio later in the day. Um, that uh just that's helped a lot you know to have be able to to not feel like i was stuck in the room the whole time and to be able to get out and live your life and to get some fresh air and take breaks and to uh that's important and I, uh so that's kind of helps with the balance and i would say uh kind of to your point my kind of advice would be for those guys that you said like i know people that have plaques and grammys and they're struggling or broke or whatever I would say, you know, the let there's a lesson to learn from that. You know, it's like so the, your goal should not be to have a Grammy or a plaque, even though that is like maybe for a lot of us something in our life we would like to achieve. And sure, it's like a goal of mine is to have that big shiny statue and stuff. You know, but um, you can't really base your life off of it because a lot of people that have achieved that, well, they're struggling too. So that you should focus more on just you know, it's just it's the hustle of it and just the building of people and just to go out there and connect with producers. So like, you know, what could, like when I look at like something like, you know, like a Manny or such, like he's been doing this for decades and he, you know, he had success with a lot of people through different periods of time, but how is he able to kind of keep that going? Well, he, I, I would see with him, like he would be working and he would do a song with, you know, that Alex the Kid had a placement on and he would say, you know, kind of, you could just tell, like he would say, like think to himself, like, saying like you know Alex the kid is that guy has a bright future you know uh, that guy I could you know if I you know if I get in with him and he, he trusts me with the sound we can mix a lot of songs together and when and then when you start having the success of working with somebody it's like a tree it just grows you know other people here so Alex or his A&R or the manager could they'll recommend you to people or the or the record label that he works with will start putting you on other stuff like mixing it's just like a, a a tree and the branches can just grow if you plan to play your cards right. So it's important and these guys that want to sustainability is tough because you always have to say, okay, that's the next Alex the kid, Mike Will made it or or different guys um, you know, uh, that kind of have next or that could have a lot of success. And to say, you know, 
you know, that's the guy I want. I need to start working with people like that. You know, I, yeah, I had success 10 years ago, but the only way to kind of go forward and be successful for the next 10 years is to find people that will be success, you know, successful and cutting edge and stuff going forward. So I, sometimes I see these guys that have decades of success is they're very good at adapting to the, the current music and they're very good at establishing relationships with up and coming producers and artists. Um, so you just kind of have to, you can't really take your foot off the gas. Like you always have to be seeking out that thing. And then those are the guys that have been mixers for successfully for decades and decades, as opposed to the guys that kind of just went away. So just always got to basically be out there hustling and building and connecting and, and, and take chances. Like, so if you think that that guy could be the next Alistair kid or whoever, you know, take a chance on him, like do a spec mix, do something like, you know, um, you're, if, if you take chances on, if you take three or four chances on different people at a time or whatever, one or two of them might lead to absolutely nothing, but one to three of those four could lead to something big that, that really helps keep your, um, career going and, and keeps you relevant and keeps people hiring you and calling you. Um, so that's the important thing is just to always take chances um, and to, to keep building with people. And then one thing just kind of leads to another. Yeah, man, that's wow. <laughs> that, that's exactly what me and Max always talk about. We always talk about building that relationship because just like your gardening is you can water, you know, your, your Japanese garden all day long. It's not going to make it grow faster. You have to tend to it the way that you need to tend to it and get slowly, it will grow by itself. But you need to keep that same consistency year after year. You can't just have your garden like, oh, I watered it on Monday. I'll come back in two weeks and see something, you know, like it's that consistent, you know, it's what they say about success, right? What, what do they say? Like 98% of like success is just showing up. So as long as you show up, you know, you've done a lot of the work and then then you have to prove yourself and then you have to, you know, you just got to get in the room and just, yeah, I, I don't quite agree with room. that. I, I don't quite okay. agree with the, the just showing up aspect. Um, maybe I'm taking it out of context, but like I'm more into the, uh, you know, people say, Oh, you're lucky or you're fortunate or whatever. This happened to you. And I, I say, you know, I like to think, well, no, it's preparation meets opportunity, you know, so you, pre you prepared for something and you got better at mixing. And here, a good opportunity came across you to mix the next dope artist, or even a, our currently big artist. And the producer says, "Hey, fucking get throw. I like this guy. Throw him a mix. You know, we'll see what he does." Um, well, it's that's an opportunity, and it's all those years and hours and constantly trying to get better that in that preparation that got you ready for that opportunity. So you can't. You really have to. Um, invest in yourself and your craft and your sound and constantly be improving yourself. Ask yourself every single mix as you're starting. Sounds pretty good. I like it. But, you know, what can I do to make it better? You know, and just constantly try to get better and better and better so that years down the line or months down the line that that when that opportunity is there, you're ready to capitalize on it. And that's how. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's um, preparing and. Uh making sure that you're ready and, you know, you will, you will hit some home runs, you know? So, uh, yeah. Cause if you're not ready, if you're not ready and you get that opportunity, 
like I like I kind of mentioned, where the, the A&R is ready, or the record label is ready to give you a shot, or the producer says, hey, instead of hiring the big mixer, let's give my guy a shot, you know, or whatever. Uh, if you're not ready for that, and you haven't been practicing, and here you are with the opportunity, and you throw in a kind of weak mix, or one that you think sounds good, but when you compare it to other mixers, it sounds weak, um, then things will start to start going downhill pretty quick. Like that record label might never call you again. That producer might look for somebody else. Or that producer might never just say, oh, he's my tracking guy. We, I, I use so-and-so for all my mixes, you know? So you can, you can kind of, if you're not ready and prepare for that opportunity, uh, you might see your career kind of sliding backwards. 100%, man. You definitely don't want that. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Well, you know, thank you so much for your time. And this has been an incredible and insightful conversation, man. Thank you so much, Eric. You're very welcome. Let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. That, this is, um, your, your perspective is, it comes through with an enormous amount of clarity and even, even the vision that you have for what you see yourself doing beyond this, you know, to be confident and know that, you want to return to teaching and, and have that be another moment in your life is it's been awesome to just get the full range of, of Eric Madrid. So thank you for your time. Hey, my pleasure.